Thank you very much, ladies. That was wonderful. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. Mark chapter number 9. And uh, in a sense, we're going to do what she just sang about. We're going to look in his wonderful face and see his glory and grace. And uh, hopefully, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim as we do so. Um, if you would, join me in standing one more time. I know we've been doing a little bit of standing and sitting, uh, but we're going to stand one more time for the reading of God's word here uh, as I read through this passage. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, just read the first two verses here, and uh, we're going to really study verses 1 through 8 as we go through this message, but uh, we'll start with just uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Mark chapter number 9 and verse number 1, it says, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this service thus far. And Lord, I pray that we would get a glimpse of your glory and grace as we consider the transfiguration of Christ. Lord, I pray that as a result, uh, Lord, the things of this earth would grow strangely dim. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So we're in chapter number nine now. That means we're, we're over the halfway point in our study through the book of Mark. And uh, I'm excited about getting to the end because as we get closer to the end, we get closer to the cross. And ultimately, the resurrection of Christ, which is what it's all about. Uh, but in chapter number 8, I, I realize I just read in chapter number 9, but in chapter number 8, I do want to just remind us of one thing that Jesus announced to his disciples in verse 31. And uh, he announced something for the very first time that was a little earth-shattering to those disciples. And he announced in verse 31 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So he announced that he was going to suffer, and I'm sure all they heard was, uh, my master, my Lord, is the, the Christ is going to suffer and be killed. Uh, they, they didn't really think too much about the fact that he was going to rise again the third day. That didn't really register in their minds, but, but the suffering and being killed, that, that certainly... Uh, uh, hit, hit a nerve, and, and uh, they remember Peter's response to that, and he said, no, not so, and uh, God forbid that this happened, and, and uh, Peter rebuked the Lord. And then the Lord had to rebuke Peter back and say, get thee behind me, Satan. Remember that, and then in verse 34 last week, we looked at how Jesus got those disciples, but also the others that were around, and uh, explained what true discipleship would, would be. And uh, we looked at the price of discipleship. We saw the paradox of discipleship that uh, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Uh, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. And then we saw the pressure of discipleship about not being ashamed of him uh, here in this life. So in essence, he was saying that being a true disciple would indeed cost them dearly in this life. And uh, now I realize that that's the end of chapter number eight, and, 
uh, just a quick reminder that the original scriptures were not verse number 38 and chapter number 9. There were no chapter and verse divisions in the original manuscripts. Uh, the translator added those for our benefit to help us to be able to find the different uh, sections quickly. But um, here, and I'm not sure if the, just, I, I, I don't know if the um, uh, translators made the right choices here on putting the chapter division in this spot or not, but whether he did or didn't, uh, here it really kind of flows from verse 38 to verse number 1. It's kind of one continuous thought. So as he's explaining discipleship, and then he says to them right on the heels of that, in verse number 1, hey, I wanna, I, I'm going to tell you something here, that there's going to be some of you that are standing here, you're not going to see death until you've seen the kingdom of God come with power. So he wanted to let them know that, yes, discipleship is going to cost them dearly in this life. He wants them and us to know that true disciples are going to be rewarded with glory by and by. Now, Jesus performed many miracles in his earthly ministry, but it seems that he did his most powerful miracles when he was alone with his disciples. Consider that thought. Uh, it was the disciples alone who got to witness Jesus walking on the water. That wasn't for a crowd to see. It was only for an intimate group of uh, people, his disciples. It was the 12 disciples who alone saw him calm the storm on the Sea of Galilee back in Mark chapter number 4 when Jesus was taking a nap and they accused him of not caring that they perish. Remember that? Uh, the disciples were there to see him do that. And, and now we come to another miracle that only, that the, only the disciples saw, but it actually wasn't all the disciples. Only three got to see this one. And uh, I want to look at the transfiguration of Christ. In fact, uh, just a side note here, uh, this is my very first sermon on the transfiguration of Christ. I've never preached on this a particular passage or this particular aspect of the life of Christ. Uh, so here we go. Uh, you and I are going to do this together for the first time, okay? Uh, so let's uh, get started here and look first, number one, at his promise. In verse number one, he gives them a promise that there will be some of you that are standing here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And notice the first word in that, in the King James, is the word verily. And the reason that word there, it's a unique word, and, and uh, Jesus is the only one, to my knowledge, that uses the word verily. Remember in John chapter 3, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Uh, verily is a, is a word that basically means trustworthy, firm, surely. It means amen. Let it be. It's true. And here he says, I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you something that is going to come to pass. I am promising something. And as we consider his promise here to these uh, disciples, I want to just take a quick moment and uh, mention a few things about the promises of God. Uh, Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, he references the, the promises of God. He says, Wherefore, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. So he says, God's given us exceeding great and precious promises. 
2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. See, when God makes a promise, it comes to pass. Can I get an amen there? Thank you. Because we know that God can do anything, there's actually nothing too hard for him. And yet the scriptures tell us that there is at least one thing that God cannot do. Say, wait a minute, that's blasphemous. Uh, the Bible says that God cannot lie. There's a couple references. You can jot these down. Titus 1 and verse number 2. Paul says this, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 6 and verse 18, That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. You see, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything that he says is truth, and it comes to pass. Every promise has already come to pass or will come to pass. A promise from God is a statement that we can depend upon with absolute certainty and confidence. What are some of the promises of God that he's given to us as believers and this is just a, a sampling I have a list here I'm not going to even read all of them uh, for sake of time but God promised his presence uh, he said in Hebrews 13 5 I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee uh, God said it that settles it whether you believe it or not God's promises are going to come to pass God's power in our lives I will strengthen thee yea I will help thee Isaiah 41 10 God's leading in our life. John 10, 4 says, When he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. God leads us. He promises to do so. And what about God's wise plan? All things, we know all things work together for good to them that love God. Yeah, even this war is taking place. We know that all things work together for good. God is able to make something as horrible and as terrible as what's going on in Ukraine to turn out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's God's promise. And what God says is true. God's faithfulness is a promise. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, 1 Samuel 12, 12, or 12, 22. God's goodness, no good thing will he withhold from them that work uprightly, Psalm 84, 11. There's others that we could uh, talk about here. But here's the deal. You cannot break God's promises by leaning upon them because they're sure they will come to pass. And Jesus here in verse number one of Mark chapter nine promised that some would not taste death till they have seen uh, the kingdom of God come with power. Well, they heard that promise and a day goes by. No coming kingdom with great power. Two days go by. Three, four, five days go by and nothing. Uh, God must have, Jesus uh, must have been joking when he said that. No, he wasn't joking. Because you see, finally after six days, in verse number two, after six days, then Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John. So he said, those three, I'm going to show you the kingdom of God that comes with great power.
I realize that many of God's promises seem like they're taking forever to come to pass. But I will say this, eventually they will come to pass. You see, he keeps his word. You might be on day five going, yeah, right, this is not like, I'll believe it when I see it. It's going to come to pass. Trust him. I was going to say, trust me. No, don't trust me. Trust him. Uh, Because his word is true. Remember, it was Jesus that said he would die and rise again. Well, guess what? He did. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come. And on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come and indwell believers. See, uh, God promised something was going to happen, and it's going to happen. By the way, Jesus also said that he's coming back for us. You say, well, it hasn't happened. Well, maybe it's only day four. And day six is coming around the bend. He will come back for us. At some point, the Bible says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And what he says will happen does eventually happen. So we see here in verse number one, his promise. But then I want us to notice secondly here, his people in verse number two. So after six days, Jesus taketh with him. He mentions three people, Peter, James, and John. There's only three. And first we have his disciples, but it wasn't all of the 12 disciples. It was only three of them. Now, most who've been saved for a while have have heard that Peter, James, and John are really the inner circle of those those 12 disciples, that they're the closest to the Lord somehow. Um, We've seen them uh, participate in some special things with the Lord. And of course, this is one of the most special things that they could have experienced. I mean, to see the Lord transfigured before their very eyes had to be an amazing experience. I mean, what a privilege to be called to go to that particular event. Um, Back in Mark chapter number five, you don't have to turn over there, but Mark chapter five, uh, we looked at how Jesus healed and raised Jairus's daughter from the dead. Well, guess who got to go in there? Peter, James, and John. Later on, as Jesus is after the upper room, meeting with all the disciples in the upper room and goes into the garden, guess who he takes with him? Uh, Yeah, Peter, James, and John. These individuals went on to do some great and mighty things, by the way. Uh, Peter went on and preached on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people were saved and baptized and went on to write two books of the New Testament, First and Second Peter. What about James? Well, he went to go be a pastor, and he was beheaded by King Herod. That's not exactly great and mighty things. Well, he became one of the first church martyrs, and uh, he was faithful unto death. And then what about John? Well, he went to go write five books of the New Testament. We have the Gospel of John. We have First and Second, Third John, and then we have the book of Revelation. And John was the only of the 12 who died of natural causes. But these inner three, God used in a great way, and he was preparing them for future. Um, I want to just ask, 
And maybe you've seen a little chart or um, you've, lo- you've considered the disciples and how there was 12 of them. Three were in the inner circle. One of them was a counterfeit disciple named Judas. He wasn't even saved. And then we have the other eight. Where do you find yourself as a disciple? Do you find yourself as just one of the average, run-of-the-mill, ordinary disciples, one of the eight, that, yeah, we know about Matthew and Bartholomew, but can you name all the others? Maybe not. But we all know Peter, James, and John because they were in the inner circle. Are you in the inner circle with the Lord? It could be that there's somebody in here today who is like Judas, a counterfeit disciple, who puts on a pretty good act, who everybody trusts to even handle the money, and yet he wasn't even saved. Maybe you're an Academy Award-winning Christian. You can put on the act, and everybody thinks you're saved. Everybody thinks that you're a believer and spiritual But the truth of the matter is, you've never really truly trusted Christ. Which one are you? As we consider his people here that he took with him, he took his inner circle. Those who are closest to him. Can I ask the question, if he were to pick 10 people in the room, would he pick you? Would you be one of his inner circle that would have gotten to experience that? Or would you have just been one of the average who got to be on the sideline? Or would you be like Judas and wasn't even really part of the group at all? And so we see here the disciples. But then we have not only the disciples, if you pick it up in verse number four. Well, Yeah, verse number four says, And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So here we have not only the disciples, the three disciples, and Jesus, but now we have two of the Old Testament saints. We have Moses, and we have Elias, or Elijah. Now Moses, of course, represented the law. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, most of them. He didn't write the last part of Deuteronomy that talked about Moses' death, that would have been pretty amazing uh, to uh, talk about his own death. Uh, But uh, Moses wrote most of uh, the first five books of the Bible, and that's where we have the law. And he is, God gave him the Ten Commandments, if you recall, there on Mount, uh, on the mountain, and and then uh, he, he came down and began to teach the people. So Moses represented the law, and then Elijah represented the prophets. And one commentator pointed out that, and this is a good thought, and you'll have to kind of use your, your theological, uh, put your theological thinking cap on. I know it is Sunday, but uh, we should have our theological thinking cap on at all times, right? But one commentator pointed out that Moses died and God buried him on Mount Nebo. And he, Moses, represents the resurrected saints at the rapture, those who have already died. Because remember, when the rapture takes place, those who are already di- dead, they, they, their bodies get resurrected out of the grave. And then Elijah was caught up living into heaven. He was one of two individuals who never died. Uh, Enoch was the other. But Elijah was caught up living into heaven, and Elijah represents the raptured saints who are caught up alive into heaven at the rapture. That's a good thought. 
Now, we, we see who these, uh, these two Old Testament saints were, Elijah and Moses, but, but what did they say? Uh, Mark just simply says that they were talking with Jesus in verse number four. There appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus as the Lord transfigured. And we're going to get into the transfiguration in just a quick moment. But what were they talking about? Um, Luke's gospel actually provides more detail in what they were uh, conversing about. In Luke 9.31, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spake of his decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were talking about the fact that Jesus was going to die. That's a fine conversation, right? Here's how you're going to die. But they were talking about the cross and the fact that Jesus was going to die and how necessary it was for him to die in order for all of us to come to Christ and be saved. Now, no doubt these two Old Testament saints were going back over the Old Testament scriptures that spoke of the cross of Calvary. And uh, I, I could go into what those may have been, but for sake of time, they were just scriptures. <laughs> we'll leave it there. And uh, what, a, what a conversation that would have been to, to hear what they were saying. And uh, I, I just owe oh, to be a fly on the wall for that discussion, Right. Uh, to be there to hear Jesus and Moses and Elijah talk about the fact that Jesus was needing to go to the cross in order to be the ultimate sacrifice and to pay once and for all the sin of mankind. Well, Peter and James and John got to be the fly on the wall. They got to hear it. What a privilege. What would they say about it? Well, Peter and John both shared their testimony about that event in their letters. And uh, Peter mentioned it in in 2 Peter 1, we won't look at that one, but uh, I like the fact what John said best um, when he said, and we simply beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. That's John 1 and verse 14, when John referenced back to the day when he saw the Lord transfigured there on the mountaintop. And so we see the promise, the people, but thirdly, I want us to look here at the actual transfiguration and see his purity. Verse number two, after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. As Jesus is transfigured, the Greek word for transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho, which is the word we get our English word metamorphosis, means a complete change, the change that a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. It's a complete radical change, a change from the inside out. The change that Jesus went through is the same change that he wants to do in each of our lives as well. In Matthew's account of the transfiguration, he mentioned that his face did shine as the sun. Now, we all know that looking at the sun is not good for your eyes because it's too bright for our eyes to handle. We were driving back from the couple's retreat last Saturday, and for a good chunk of it, we were driving west right into the sunset. And that sun 
Any other couples deal with that? Um, okay. Um, it was like so bright. And I was trying to take a nap while, while Julie was driving. And so I had to put my, I had to put, it was, it was bothering me. So I was suffering. It was really bright. And here, um, here, when Jesus was transfigured, his, his face was so bright that it was as the sun. They, they probably couldn't really look straight into his face because of his purity. But then Mark here, he goes into some detail, not about his face, but about his clothing. In verse number three here, notice this, his raiment, his clothing became shining, exceeding white as snow. Now, we all know a little too much about snow in recent days, don't we, here in Oklahoma? Uh, we know how white snow gets. In fact, uh, we were playing hockey. Uh, we were using this last little sleet storm, and we ended up playing a bunch of hockey out in the street. It was awesome. We actually even got our ice skates out and skated in it. It was amazing. It was awesome. So if that ever happened, I don't think that's ever happened, or that doesn't happen very often here anyway. It was kind of a unique storm. I get that. But uh, we took advantage of it and uh, enjoyed it uh, and as hockey fans. And so I remember though one, one day during the day, Luke went out to go play and he put on sunglasses because of how bright that snow was with the sun reflecting on it. And uh, we know how bright white can be. Well, here um, Mark says in verse number three, his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. He doesn't just say they're exceeding white as snow, but he, he goes on and explains that it is it was so bright. Um, J. Vernon McGee said this, it was whiter than was even believable because the light came from within. Well, that's a good thought. Now, I'm not the main laundry person in our room, in our, in our home. Um, I guess you could say I'm, I'm kind of the second string backup laundry person, okay? You really don't want me doing laundry because I don't really look at every piece. Uh, I just put it in there. And, uh, and, but I know enough to know you put it in there and you've got to put some detergent in. So I have some detergent uh, right here with us, with me today. So you put one of these in here. Uh, we, this is from the church, so we don't have these pods here. These are really kind of handy, though. You just put these in and boom, it comes out clean-ish. Sometimes when it's really stained, guess what? You need to use a little bit more uh, other things to kind of create that, that whiteness effect. And so you might pull out something like some bleach. And you really want it white, you get some bleach out there. And if there's really a stubborn stain, you get out something like uh, this, this OxyClean Max Force. Laundry stain remover tackles the toughest dried-in stains. Okay? And, and so in order to, to create the, the whiteness, you gotta, you got to use some of these chemicals maybe. But, but here he says, and, and this is a little bit, I learned something on this. In verse number three, he says, so as no fuller on earth can wipe them. What's a fuller? A fuller is someone who is their responsibility to uh, clean cloths. 
That was their job. So it was something that they would do, and they would, they would rub and scrub the cloths until they became clean. And I was thinking about that as I learned that. I was like, that reminds me of when my wife and I were first married, um, and I did ask her permission to share the story. So as it goes on, you'll understand why I thought it would be good to ask her permission. Um, but we were first married young, young, and we didn't have a lot of, you know, real world experience yet. And, and uh, she called me one day, and I think she was cleaning the dishes or some, some type of, what was it, the bathroom or the sink or what was it? permanent marker off of something and she was like what do you what what should we use for that and I said probably just elbow grease and she said where do they carry that <laughs> do they carry that at like Home Depot or Lowe's and I said not not exactly <laughs> you got to just work at it hon <laughs> and I had to kind of teach her a little bit um, at that moment okay well what, they, what these fullers would do is they would take these garments and they would use some chemicals and try to get them super clean and super white. And here, Mark says, his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. There was no possible way to make the garments that Jesus was wearing any brighter, any whiter, because... It was coming from within, as J. Vernon McGee said. Um, here's the deal. Mark was basically saying that no amount of bleach or chemicals could cause his garments to be any whiter. And this points to the fact that Jesus is completely holy and perfectly pure. A few verses that deal with that. First John 3 and verse number 5 says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No sin. First Peter 1, Peter who saw these perfectly white and bright clothing, these shining clothes, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, here's what he says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There was no stain in him at all. First, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, the transfiguration showed the glory and the purity of our dear Savior. And while in his first advent, when he came there in Bethlehem's manger, as we celebrated Christmas just a couple months ago, uh, we thought about his first advent. Well, when he came his first time, his glory was tremendously veiled. He came in humble manner. He was born in lowly Bethlehem and was lying in a manger of all places. Isaiah tells us that he hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's how he came the first time. His glory was veiled. He took off the veil for a moment here in chapter 9 of Mark. 
as he is there in the mountain with his three disciples and these two Old Testament saints. But you see, when he comes the second time, he's not going to come in a humble manner. He's going to come in great glory and great power. And there will be no mistaking who he is. I came as the humble lamb of God the first time, but he will come as the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah the second time. Yeah. So we see his purity. But then fourthly, I need to wrap this up. We see his preeminence. Verse number five. So there they are on the mountain. Peter is listening to Moses and Elijah talking with Christ about the fact that Jesus would need to die on the cross. Verse 5, Peter answered and said to Jesus, and, and here goes Peter again thinking he needs to talk. And you always kind of cringe a little bit when he opens his mouth, don't you? I do. It's like, please don't say anything dumb. Oh, he's about to actually. This first part isn't so bad. Master, it is good for us to be here. Uh, no kidding, it's good for us to be here. What a privilege it was to be in that, in that place. But he did call him master instead of, which is just basically teacher. And then he says, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And it is interesting that he says, let let us make three tabernacles. In other words, Peter was almost taking charge at this point, saying, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we all get together and make some tabernacles for each of you three? Insinuating that, Lord, you need to come and help me do this. And again, I know Peter's heart was many times in the right place, and you know, uh, his, his tongue got ahead of his uh, brain. I think that that was the case here. He was intentions were good, but but this wasn't the moment for talking. This was the moment for listening. He probably should have just kept his mouth closed. And he was in saying by by saying, "Let's make three: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah." He was basically equating Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, with a man. And another man. Like they're equal. They're not equal, my friend. They're, they're, there's a difference. And finally, verse number six, here's Mark puts this in here. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Uh, they were scared to death of what they saw, and he didn't know what to say. He probably should have just not said anything. But, knowing, but uh, we all know Peter, and he likes to open his mouth. And insert foot. <laughs> That's what he did here. Well, verse 7 says, And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. Jesus only. While Elijah and Moses were great men indeed, there is only one Jesus, and he is all and in all. Colossians chapter number 1, verse 15 through 18 says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, what does the word preeminence mean? It means precedence. It means priority of place. Superiority in rank or dignity. It means that he, has, he should be over all in our lives. And uh, Peter realized that as he said that, and Elijah and Moses were whisked away, and Jesus was left standing there by himself to say to John, Peter, and James, and to all of us that Jesus is and should be preeminent. And so may I encourage all of us this morning to allow the Lord Jesus to not just be our fire insurance. Look, I, I'm glad that, you know, we have forgiveness of sins and we have a, the promise of eternal life in heaven and praise the Lord for that. But, but God desire, Jesus desires to be the preeminent Lord of our lives in every area of our lives. He desires to be preeminent in our schedule, our thought life, our diet, our wardrobe, our entertainment, our work ethic, our attitude towards authority, our speech, our social, me social media usage, our finances, our marriage, the way we raise our children, he desires to be preeminent in all of it. It's not an area that he doesn't desire or deserve to be preeminent in our lives. It's his rightful place. So once you allow him to be preeminent today, to be above all and in all, of your life? I hope the answer is yes. We see his preeminence, but then fifthly and lastly, we see our priority. In verse number seven, there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This voice was none other than God the Father. And here's what he said, this is my beloved son, hear him. What's our priority? To hear him. To listen to what he says and to do what he says. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. You know, there's times that I don't want to hear some things. Um, we have recently started letting our dog sleep in children's rooms at night well now that i'm back home we did they were letting them letting her do this when we were at the couple's retreat and such now that i'm back home i want her to sleep in her kennel she doesn't like to sleep in her kennel now and so when we put her in her kennel what does she do at night she begins to yelp and it's almost like every 45 seconds she'll let one go and sometimes they're louder than others and Last night, it's Saturday night, church night, big night for me to get some good rest. So I was like, I'm not taking this. She started doing it last night. Tried to have a good Christian attitude toward my dog. I, I struggled. But 
I remembered that I had earplugs. I put those in and that helped. Um, I don't actually know that she yelped after I put those in, but I don't know that I'll ever know whether she did or not because I had those in. Here's the deal. When it comes to the Lord, I would encourage you to take the earplugs out. You need to hear what he's saying. We don't need to hear what Abby's saying. We need to hear what God's saying, though. And we need to yank the earplugs out and, and hear what he says. But, but while we are to hear what he says, we must also heed what he says. James 1 tells us to not just be a hearer only, but a doer of the word as well. Because if we're not, we're deceiving our own selves. But if we are, then we're going to be blessed in our deed. So find out what Jesus says and then do it. Mary said this too. Mary, the mother of Jesus, said this when uh, Jesus performed his first public miracle. In John 2, in verse number 5, she said to the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. So we better be listening to what the Lord has to say, and then we better be willing to obey it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. That's our priority. Okay. As Jesus is ready to head to Jerusalem to suffer many things, to be mocked, humiliated, scourged, and crucified, he wanted to show his disciple, disciples what was on the other side of that suffering. The transfiguration was a foreshadow of the coming day when Jesus will be crowned as the sovereign Lord and King. I'm looking forward to that day. But by the way, you don't have to wait until he is crowned publicly. My encouragement for all of us today is to decide to crown him Lord of all in our own lives and in our hearts today. Not waiting for that one day in the future, but to crown him Lord of all in our lives today. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the time we've had together today. Talk about this awesome, truly in the definition of the word awesome, awesome experience, awesome event in the life of our Savior. Lord, to show his glory, to uh, reveal who he really is. Lord, we look forward to that day when he will rule and reign here on this earth. But until then, Lord, help us to allow you to rule and reign in our own lives. Help us, Lord, to crown you Lord of all, to allow you to be preeminent in our life, and to make sure that we're listening to what you're saying and that we're not just letting it go in one ear and out the other, but that we would take heed to what you have to say. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are